And now, Hollywood Prospectus. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Hold your applause. Shia. Hello and welcome to the Hollywood Prospectus Podcast. My name is Chris Ryan. I am a writer for Grantland.com. And on the other line, working on the Gettysburg Address of Mission Statements, it's Andy Greenwald! I didn't know where we were going with yeah, that. I, didn't know I was where excited. I was going either, man. I'm sorry. That's okay. This is fine. There's a lot to talk about today. I didn't even know we were starting. Andy, we've got Batman. We've got Superman. We've yeah. got Star Wars. Yeah. And we've got Game of Thrones because apparently we're 13 year old boys. But why don't we start with Mad Men because we're actually middle aged men? You want to start there? <laughs> yeah, let's start with Mad Men. That's wild. Yeah. All right. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, okay. Mad so, Men's happening. Uh, last night episode was called The Forecast. It was. Yeah, and it, it featured a couple of scenes where uh, showrunner Matthew Weiner seemed to challenge himself by saying, who are the three worst actors on this show? And can <laughs> I, I put them in multiple scenes together? <laughs> thought you were going in a different direction. Yeah, Respect That was went. the yeah. Clippers bench of Mad Men. It was the Austin Rivers, Hadou Turgaloo, Big Baby Davis scene. Look, look, let's just put this out there. If you had a prestige television show, like you wouldn't put your child on it, even though if your child had shown no inclination or ability towards acting. Uh, it was funny how when he opens, like, they open the door and it was like, it's Glenn! And it was like, that's not like, it was sort of like a weird comeback. Like, nobody was really clamoring for that. Literally no one was, except, I guess, in the Weiner household. And I have to say, there was like a weird... You know, the, you know, people talk about the camera's eye and what it lingers on. Yeah, there was definitely like a fetishization that was a little bit parental, where it's just like, look at my little, look at my little son. Look I thought for a solid second that like, what if the the last three episodes of Mad Men were just a montage of Glenn going through basic training while Sounds of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel were playing? <laughs> it would be amazing. Look, it is interesting, and I'm I'm going to come all the way back around and defend most of, if not all, of the choices in this episode. Yeah. But it, is been, it has been interesting to see what they've been doing where baseline, we've been saying this since the show came back, baseline Mad Men is great. Yes. Like, my favorite moment in the entire episode is was when uh, Don, having a morning bottle of beer, as you do, <laughs> just walks in and has just like six back and forth ping pong balls with Roger Sterling. That's was that a bottle of beer or was that like a root beer? No, it was a beer. Or else he wouldn't have, I, I, I think, right? <laughs> I guess. Why, why else was he mad at him for carrying it around? Or I thought was it was he mad he had like an RC it, cola or something like that. Or was it mad because it was a non-alc? Well, because he, he was also going after knowledge. like the candy bars. I thought maybe Don had a sweet tooth this episode. Oh, you think that's the subtext? No, I'm saying is that there's subtext. He's just (laughs) a man likes candy now and again. What I'm saying is there were there are things that are just so we just want them and we're going to miss them when they're gone. Mm -hmm. And this season keeps putting third wheels into them. So, for example, the Sally Betty scene where Sally basically joked that she had been knocked up. uh, Great scene. Like very funny. Yeah, I really, really like that relationship. We've been watching that relationship through all of its mostly negative downward trends. Yeah, and now we see they sort of reach this detente kind of thing, where like they both know who they are and they're both kind of snarky, but they admire that in each other. And then Glenn comes crashing through the window, and you know it's the same thing with with uh, with last week when we had all the stuff that we liked, and then we had the waitress. So it is a weird thing to be doing in this last season to be bringing back things we don't necessarily want. I've seen a couple of times it mentioned that this. The, the the through line through these last few episodes has been a minor character is reintroduced to kind of be given his or her uh, farewell. Send yeah, off, so we had yeah. Cosgrove, we had Glenn last night. Um, I think that... Uh, Although, 
not to jump in, but we're also seeing major characters. Like last week's was Megan's send off. I don't think Joan is going to get another centric episode with four left. That yeah, was her send off more or less. Yeah. But sorry, go ahead. So do, there isn't going to do. You, do you really get the? Just, it just doesn't seem like unless this mission statement thing turns into a larger existential question for Don about what do you do once you've get gotten to the top of the mountain and and everybody else around him seems content to be like I want a pharmaceutical, I want an oil company, I want a tire company, and he seems to think that they are going to have some sort of, like, Kennedy-esque final frontier mission. Yeah. Um, do you think that's going to be the sort of driving narrative point to the it, last few episodes? Or It is. I yeah. mean, it already is. Last night was almost... It, it was very, very... Uh, it was all very much foregrounded, what yeah. was going on. You know, he was having this sort of crisis. And, you know, in the scenes where he was in his office, it was very evident behind his shoulder the the, the famous Kodak carousel wheel that, you know, that defined the first season mm-hmm. was visible, sort of in a in a moldering box... And you know, one of the things that I wrote about at the beginning of the season was that that carousel that was so inspiring has basically become a hamster wheel. And this was the episode where he's basically interrogating everyone, and he's realizing that he is now out of step with yeah. everything. You know, there was a callback to something you said. Well, I guess it wasn't since it was filmed last year. But in my mind, it was a callback to something you said last week about how no one's actually doing work anymore at the, the highest level. Yeah, and they say something about that, right? Like, yeah, Don even noticed that. think about and and less that. to do, yeah. Yeah, and then that scene where Don at the candy machine negotiates peace between Peggy and Pete without doing anything. Um, there's this, and, and I thought actually that last scene in the previous week's episode with the waitress, um, where she talks about the pain that she always wants to feel, that was a very interesting callback to what Don sold Kodak on, which yeah, was the idea the that nostalgia yeah. is pain. Yeah. Uh, except pain is kind of just pain, it's kind of a bad thing. So that is definitely where we're headed. Um, what I thought was pretty interesting about last night was this was, it's not, I'm not even going to call it meta. It was just, again, it was right there on the nose. This was a showrunner being like, I don't really know how to end this. Mm-hmm. I don't know what how to sum up something that was kind of about life. I am uncomfortable with the weight that finales have taken on. Um, what's the next accomplishment? When, when Don was in, interrogating uh, Peggy, he was basically sounding to me like a network executive asking someone to sketch out seasons five, six, and seven of the show. Yeah. You know, she's like, well, I'll get a big account, and then I'll get promoted, and then we'll... I'll be a creative director, yeah. And I'll become part of the culture. It's it's very interesting and rare to see someone just putting it right there in the front that I don't know. I don't know. I, the layers of uh, of fatherhood imagery, both on screen and off screen, that were in this episode mm-hmm. were really intriguing. Not only do you have Don sort of um, sitting in judgment or, or judging a, a or trying to mediate really a conflict between Pete and Peggy, who are sort of the two two poles of his work life, squabbling um, children, yeah. And then he's got actually his daughter leaving to go off on this. What is basically. Uh, you know, probably one of the last times we'll see Sally. And in doing right. so, she's renouncing her parents. And then you've got the showrunner's son showing up to be like, I am going to go die. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so the, I, the imagery of, of, of children growing up and leaving you behind is not unlike the idea of tending to and fostering this show for so many years and then having that show be absolutely. Be, it's either done with you or you're done with it. And let's put this out there, too. Um, the Mathis scene, yeah. where Mathis goes to Don like a supplicant or like a child for advice, takes the advice literally, and then gets angry. I mean, that was a that was a very much a father-child relationship, yeah. too. Um, and, you know, for the second straight week, I guess, because Megan did it last week, a supposed underling, or at least someone who is Don... Consulting I mean, I don't know if Don space, considered yeah. Megan to be at his level, but spoke truth to him, and he, and it hit. 
Yeah. It, 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 He's been it, getting you know, dressed it, down it by everybody. Peggy, Roger, his real estate agent, Megan. Yeah. His, his real Most estate people agent. are coming into his office and being like, you're, you know, you're just a, a, a handsome face. Yeah, which is mostly true. I mean, I, 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 I think that he's he's proven himself to be more resourceful and, sure. and more creative and good at his job. But one thing that, that – here's something that we know. Let's say this. We know from the public record, of which Matthew Weiner avails himself often, yeah. that his – whatever loose idea he had for a last story to tell – and every showrunner definitely has one. If they say they don't, they're lying. But it, it you know changes organically as the show becomes the show. But I think that he's pretty much said that his idea for a last season was season six. Right. And, and that was with the flashbacks and ending with Don showing his daughter where he was from for real. Right. You know, this is me. This is my past. This is my life. Um, and he basically said, like, well, but, you know, the thing about TV and I guess the thing about advertising with those late night, last night, last idea, best idea sessions is that something comes out of the ether and you get inspired and you you find the true last story. Mm-hmm. So much of this last season has been about that. Yeah. You know, and, and just in a sort of a public performance it's a of it. It's, sound, it's, feel, it's functioning more like a weird epilogue than it is a finale. And, and written from perspective of someone, it, this is the true within the show and behind the scenes of the show, a guy who achieved everything. Mm-hmm. And then what's next? No, you it know? would be like if Friday Night Lights had another six or eight episodes after Coach and Tammy are, spoiler alert if you haven't seen Friday Night Lights, if, after Coach and Tammy are in Philadelphia or whatever, we're having like their, their great life. And the, it's just six episodes of like Eric Taylor going to the store and being a little bit disappointed at where he wound up. <laughs> You know, a little bit like, disappointed. Coach in Texas, yeah. And think and think about Mad Men too. Just in terms of, it's it's interesting to note that it's definitely had a consensus critical peak that is now in the rearview mirror. Yeah. Um, the industry sort of frozen it out the last few years. It, it it's been nominated for Emmys and hasn't won any in three years after winning one for the every year for the first four years of its existence. Um, it's you know, and you look at Don's office. It's not just the Kodak wheel there. It's Lane Price's Mets pennant mm-hmm. uh, of a dead man, a dead man's pennant hanging on the wall and also those advertising awards that he won and i believe the last one is 1959 sure or 1960 um which is when the show starts right the show starts in 60 right but it but it but it's reckoning with these things that are not necessarily popular or comfortable to watch but here i have a question for you so we're talking about this through the prism of of a conversation i think has been playing out online this idea that there are people who are actively disappointed in the show for not giving the audience resolution or finality is that real or is that a straw man I, I, argument? I was going to just say that I wonder whether or not we reflexively re- re- reference people like that, whether or not they exist or not. Yeah, be, just to have something to talk about because there's only so many times. I mean, we can go into this sort of nitty gritty of like imagery of fatherhood or whatever in every episode, but part of what drives conversations so much now is this idea of falling short of or exceeding expectations for almost every show we talk about it's like oh actually you guys all said this show wasn't as good as this but it's actually quite quite a bit better and i think we always we we fall victim to it too where you just build up a straw man in your head of somebody who's telling you the true detective or kimmy schmidt or whatever isn't or is good and you are you come up with an argument against or for it you know yeah, I think you're right. I, I think also I'd love to like actually have a ten minute, interesting ten minute conversation with somebody who actually thinks Mad Men is bad, like yeah, for real. Wa- who watches just, every episode and is like, "This is not that, good." That's yeah. the thing. I think at this point, you know, I said last week that by the end, of, by the show's final season, the show reveals what it actually is. By show's final season, only the people who care about the show are yeah. watching it, especially if it's the seventh season. Yeah, um, it, it's interesting to think about this in terms of a lot of the other stuff that we're going to talk about going forward. Um, 
before, you know, we're going to get to Game of Thrones in a minute, but one of the things that I constantly come up against when I'm watching the show in Game of Thrones is every time we get a glimpse of a life that's not absolute garbage, uh-huh. I'm like, oh, goodbye, Hope. Like, why yeah, don't right. we all just go there? And this is me basically projecting my own psychology onto the show, being like, I don't want conflict. I want to go live in the nice water garden in the desert. Yeah. That doesn't make for an entertaining show. Now, that said, Mad Men has essentially been that show. This final season is about a guy finally being like, yeah, I'm really good in the Roman arena, but I don't want to fight lions anymore. Yeah. And so it's a kind of drama that is on a high level to pull it off, high level of difficulty, but it's also not necessarily the beats that we're used to. The victory that he might get at the end is not going to feel like a traditional series-ending victory, if he gets one at all. There's been a lot of... There has been talk about this idea of ghosts and how real some of this season or these past seasons or episodes have been. And I do like the idea, even though I don't subscribe to it, that um, he does walk around that office with an almost ghost-like presence, and when he, mm-hmm. it's almost like he's like visiting people, like the way the Christmas Story ghost does, you know. And when he goes and talks to Ted Shaw, I found that conversation particularly, yeah, well, brilliant, but but also quite moving. The way he's just so let down that this former adversary, this like great, like the one guy who seemed to challenge him a little bit, is sort of like. Yeah, and he's like picking donut out of his mustache, and he's like, yeah. "I'd love a pharmaceutical." Like that's such like, a great moment where he's like, Don's looking to all these people to give his life meaning, and these people's lives already have meaning. Yes, and he's so but, disappointed by that, especially because and the Ted scene was really interesting because Ted is not used very often. Last time we saw Ted, he was basically having a complete nervous breakdown. Yeah. And he was the one saying that this is meaningless. He was thinking about suicide. He, didn't, he hated where he was. He the hated whole Peggy being thing, yeah. Um, and now he's just sort of back on the hamster wheel, and he's okay with it. Um, well, he also seems to be, like, going through quite a, quite a, like a run with, like, casting calls, you know? Right. He, that's where he is now, which is where Don has been for much of sure. the decade. It's, you know, I think everyone would agree that... that the thing about Weiner is that it's always there on the screen. I mean, there was all the stuff about him with the, taking credit for other writers mm-hmm. and his odd relationship with younger writers. And then we have an episode like The Suitcase where it's like that that's what the money is for. And it's impossible not to read things into it. So much of the show is about the creative process. When you think about someone who has made this work of art, this enormous success that is, you know, that transformed TV in a lot of ways and is going to be remembered as one of the all-time great shows, the truth is... I'm sure he's frustrated. I'm sure he thought, well, I fed the beast in a different way, but I made a TV show. He wants to make a movie. There's always something else. And David Chase and The Sopranos was like this, too. And that is a pretty heavy thought to think about when watching the show because we're watching it like, well, this guy probably is the best TV writer, certainly of his generation, one of the best of all time. And what's seeping out of the show is that is discontent. Yeah. And it's 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 psychologically fascinating. It's a weird place to end, but it's I'm I'm I am really clearly I'm really into these final episodes. Uh, as Mad Men starts to wind down, uh, you can't help but feel because they're you watch them on the same night often, right? If you're watching them like most people, you watch them back to back. Is the feeling that Game of Thrones is about to take like full flight? You know, not only yeah. just because Drogon just came back to get a little bit of a chin scratch, as you, as you mentioned, but because I think that um, a lot of the chess pieces that we always refer to on this show uh, about, like, the characters moving into different places seem to be finally coming together in a lot of different ways. I mean, and one of the reasons why I really liked this second episode was yeah. um, whether or not it's Martin or Benioff and Weiss, how much of it was about, like, the nitty gritty political and 
judicial like wrangling that goes on in world creation. I mean, we always yes. praise world creation as a, a a quality that we really admire in any any piece of art, whether it's television or novels or movies. But these guys are taking it really seriously, and that's sort of been a, a really cool part. It, it, they, there's these have been very talky episodes, um, dwarf murder aside, uh, but they they are very interesting because they're about process. I, I've really enjoyed these these two episodes. I think um, you know one of the reasons why I really like TV in general is because it's an art form where imagination is enormously important, mm-hmm. but also productivity and just getting it done and sort of um, pragmatism is important too. And I think that. You're, that's sort of what you're you're talking about here, which is that you can you know you can draw the biggest map in the world and and you know just take all these flights of fancy. Well, there's a desert kingdom here, and there's a big statue on this city. Yeah. But then actually talking about how these places are run, what makes them different from each other, and and for me, the process was interesting last night. And I agree with you. I thought that this episode, uh, the House of Black and White, was just I thought it was an excellent episode. Um, I love just those opening moments, and this is what I wrote about in the recap, where Arya is floating into Bravos, and we just have this glimpse of a Hab- it's inhabited. This is a place floating where people into Bravos. Live. Definitely a mixtape title, by the way. <laughs> I think it should be. Yeah. Um, you know, there's like melon vendors and people frying yeah. fish in the harbor, and there's the sense that there is a world that is actually going on here. And these people who are operating on this, you know, this weighty uh, political and spiritual level is is slightly off to the side from real life. And that's important. And, I, and I, you know, considering the amount of work that these guys have to do just to maintain the story and maintain all the characters and service everything, it's really nice that every so often they remember to be like, okay, well, the world has to be worth saving. Yeah. We have to show that in some way. It's incredible also when you watch uh, Thrones and Mad Men back to back is you, you're, it's so obvious or it's really called into focus how Mad Men doesn't have any exteriors. Like, there are no exterior scenes in Mad Men, so it's only 1970 because of a haircut or a suit or a reference. It's never... Or the lighting filter, yeah. Right, because you walk outside and there's a car that pulls up. I mean, I'm sure that you could go through and there are. I mean, I know the bus station is an exterior or whatever, but there's a very limited frame in Mad Men, whereas in Game of Thrones, to use HBO's money and do it for something as interesting as having a market in this Venetian-style water entrance to a city that has... And I, I'm really fascinated, too, by how Bravos and um, Dorn are weirdly on the margins of this world where we've been seeing nothing but destruction and death and murder for the last five or six years. There are these little pockets of the world that are actually functioning quite well. Yeah, that that seem fine. I mean, yeah. we haven't seen anything of Dorn other than where the royals live. So sure. it maybe, it, maybe it's a wasteland. We don't know that yet. But um, but yeah, like Bravos is fine. That's apparent, you know, it's a rich city. They've got... Very impressive architecture. Yeah. Um, I, I'm I sure you, help... you can get into a, a alleyway confrontation over a pigeon that you've just beheaded. <laughs> sure. I mean, where couldn't you do that though? I could Seriously. step outside here in Manhattan Southwest and I would have the same conversation. Is notorious for that. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's always roving pigeon gangs in every major metropolis. <laughs> um, what did you think of? Well, I mean, let, let, let's just let's get into it. Um, the episode got its name House of Black and White because there apparently is a house not in new orleans but in bravos where it's the house of black and white <laughs> yeah um aria hangs out there she's she's going there to encounter her old friend jackin who likes to kill people and change his face yeah um gotta i gotta ask this straight up the bat in bravos why does a black man have to answer the black door uh i had not thought of that why has it got to be like that <laughs> i thought bravos was a free city it just seemed weird to me 
Uh, yeah, I mean, so what is the, the House of Black and White? Do you know much about what it's supposed to symbolize in terms of like, is she supposed to choose one of those doors to go through? In New York City, there's a very famous cookie. And both sides... Of, no. I know. I've tried these at Wexler's Deli, like, every once in a while. Oh, did, did yeah. you? Uh, I have... I know. I have no no idea. Um, and clearly, neither did she. And I guess she passed some test, which involved sitting in the rain, repeating the names of people you want to murder, throwing your coin into the ocean, decapitating a pigeon, getting into a fight, and then going back. So I thought that when she gets rid of the coin, it's supposed to be... they. She symbolically gives up who she was before she arrived there. Oh, so she's good. supposed to become no one, right? So you have to get rid of your 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 past. That's possible. I mean, I guess we're going to find out. One thing that I w- I was going to say I was happy to see, but I bet the actor's agent was happier to see was that Jacken's like default face Is was still the that same guy. face. Yeah, exactly. Because it could have just been the guy at the end of the episode, or they've recast. They could have just like ripped it off, and it could have been Giamatti. I would have just been like, "Oh, <laughs> Giamatti," or like Paul Mooney. Like it, it literally could yeah. be anybody. And yeah, or it, both. They've re- one half Giamatti, one half Paul Mooney. The, first of all, I would watch that movie. Um, <laughs> but that's that's the beauty. They recast before, but this time you actually could do it. One hundred percent in on Arya, like doing a, a like a little Kill Bill with Arya, like just a revenge. Yes like basically martial arts movie where she's going to go and do her training bit to get ready to be uh, ready ready to confront her enemies. It's pretty awesome. I think that in general, we have a, we have a TV based performance economy where we like to buy high on young actors. Mm -hmm. And so the Kiernan Shipka, she plays uh, Sally Draper (laughs) uh, financial bubble was really riding high. I think that maybe it's crested at the moment. I think she was, you know, she's fine. She's great in that part. Um, she's yet to prove that she can do the bigger stuff yet. You know, she was not, she didn't have much to do on Kimmy Schmidt. I don't know if you saw that episode, but I'm saying that not to denigrate Kieran Chipka, but to say that Maisie Williams really is fantastic. She is. And has gotten better every year. And as soon as she's back on the show, it's like, we've talked about, last week we talked about in the Watch the Thrones podcast, which everyone should check out on Wednesdays. Right. You can subscribe to separately on iTunes. Fresh, hot content. Um, we talked about how maybe Game of Thrones was lacking major villains. Yeah. The flip side of that is it kind of also doesn't have heroes. I mean, that's kind of what the show is. The closest thing to someone that we can just unapologetically root for is, person is, Arya, is, yeah. is Arya, right? Um, tell me about – because, again, like the first week's episode, it jumped around a lot. But you liked where it went. So let's, let, yeah, let's go I, through so some Yeah, so the things places. that I really enjoyed were the, uh, the sort of – here's the thing. On Scandal, people dress and would you, if you saw characters from Scandal on the street, you'd just be like, there's a, a normal looking person. But in their personal lives and on their lives of their, their lives on that show, they do the most ridiculous things possible. Right. Game of Thrones people, if you saw them on the street, you'd just be like, ah, that guy's got a robe. But you would. the politics of Game of Thrones and the, the, the different things that they go through in terms of their legal system and their political system kind of resemble a lot of what we see today, you know what I mean? And I was really fascinated by the the vote for the Night's Watch, for instance, to be the Lord High Commander of the Night's Watch. I was inter- very interested in the kangaroo court that got assembled uh, at the end of the episode in Marine to sort of decide yeah. whether or not um, this guy who had committed a just murder, basically, was going to be punished for that. And I was fascinated by the quick, quick peek we got into Dorne, where you obviously have um, Oberyn's wife who in her like who is sort well, of well, acting pa- paramore paramore she, yeah. who is acting not unlike cersei trying to get things done that would cause wars 
for right. her own personal sense of vengeance or, or whatever justice. Right. We had different examples of leadership and how heavy the crown yes. weighs on people. Yeah. Um, going to Marine, I mean, here's something to say. Like, I talked about this with our maester, with Jason Concepcion. We've talked about it. The Marine stuff is clearly influenced by our national misadventure in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Like, this is, this is stuff of quagmire, of trying to build a government, of trying to walk in and make things better, giving people freedom, liberating them, and then realizing that, you know, we're kind of trapped in that liberation. Um, the fact that this is playing out in a fantasy TV show is pretty fascinating. Yeah. The places that it's going, even in a clearly foreshortened way, thank, actually, thank God, to be honest, but the fact that it's going there at all is really interesting. Yeah. Um, what we saw just, you know, maybe this goes on much longer in the books, but exactly what you're saying, that she was trying to do the right thing and hold that line. But the right thing is incredibly unpopular uh, and could get her in even further trouble going forward. I mean, this is the stuff that The Wire was. Yeah. Um, in terms of there is no good answer. Everyone's just trying, and trying usually isn't good enough. Now, what's interesting is that I'm looping this back again slightly to our Mad Men conversation. Can I actually say something really quickly about Marine? Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the last scene where the dragon comes back because I think you could read that in a bunch of different ways, and obviously people who have advanced knowledge of what's happening in these stories would know. But to me, that actually sort of the darkest reading of that scene yeah. is that she can be as galvanizing a leader as as she can be. I mean, she can be this incredible figure who people look to as a mother. But at the end of the day, the thing that gives her power is this weapon. Yeah. It, and that's yeah, not unlike d- a lot of in, you know, a lot of power in the last hundred years is the, you're a superpower if you have the atomic bomb, you're, if you're yes. a nuclear power. And she that's her nuclear weapon. Yep. And that, that I, I don't think it was a direct allegory or anything, but I def- definitely thought I was like, this is fascinating because she's been posited often as this messiah, but the reason she's a messiah is because of the weapon she has. That's what it all comes back to, exactly. And what I'm curious about is if that kind of darkness, cynicism, impossibility, um, pessimism, how that plays out in what is now the you know two to three season endgame of a fantasy show, yeah. where... You know, I don't think it's going to have, like Mad Men, I don't think it's going to have a triumphant ending where everyone jumps in the air and freeze frames, you know. But I, I do wonder if at a certain point we're going to – it's interesting. I, I want them to get out of Marine, or at least I want Tyrion to get there faster. Yeah, sure, I'm finding it a drag. Yeah. At the same time, I would, on some level, maybe it's just intellectually, I would be disappointed if they were just like, well, that was a mess, but now let's take the Iron Throne. It's going to be a little bit of a bummer if it's eight episodes of, like, a Homeric – odyssey between of although i really enjoy varus and, oh, yeah. and Tyrion's like banter of them stopping every two towns to have like a little mini adventure before they finally get to marine um you were going to say something about Mad Men, though you were going to connect the two. Oh, just that 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 we're talking about thing we're talking about tv and medium even if we're talking about straw men in terms of Mad Men, you know people like resolution i don't think that's a straw man argument yeah. people like some finality and game of thrones in that plotline specifically, is dealing with something that cannot be... It almost cannot be resolved. It certainly cannot yeah. be resolved happily. So that'll be interesting to see. And, and, it, and it definitely stands in contrast, probably in a good way, to a plot line, plot line like Arya, where she's just literally naming people she wants dead, and she'll be happy when they're dead. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot cleaner. Well, it's interesting. Uh, the, last, the first few seasons of this show really built up and then depleted our stores of optimism. And this is something you wrote about a lot in, in, your, right. in your recap, was this idea that as Benioff and Weiss wrestle away the show from Martin a little bit, that they are 
given a larger emotional palette to be working from. And it's over the first few seasons, whether it's Ned Stark or Rob Stark or Sansa Stark or whoever. Any Stark. Yeah, any Stark, you kind of start to get your hopes up that maybe things could change or maybe Joffrey won't do this to the person or whatever or Cersei will relent or something. And and then that hope is destroyed, usually. And we're starting to get, you're slowly building up, okay, Arya, she's she's okay. It looks like she's going to train to do something yeah. in her life. And Jon's now the commander of Lord High Watt. And, like, Stannis seems to like him a lot. And everything's working out on that end. And then in the back of my head, I can't forget Melisandre asking Jon if he's a virgin or not. You know, and all these things that could eventually come come up down the line. But well, do you feel yourself almost having fatigue about the idea that... Well, there seems to be a very, very, very dark view of power and mm-hmm. what it does to people. And the thing about Jon Snow is that he is very popular now. I mean, I, some people in the Night's Watch don't like him, but he earned... This, this is what I wrote in the recap, but like his popularity is that of the outsider. Mm-hmm. Like Everyone loves you when you're running against something or you're able to you know, do these, make these take on these difficult things and you're representing only yourself. I mean, he's done a lot of suicide missions. He's done a lot of brave things, taking the heat for other people. Now, this is probably the high point of his leadership, getting elected and getting clapped on the back by a bunch of people. Now that he has the crown, I think we're going to see what happens. So it's been more interesting to watch the maneuverings of those to the side of power. Those, those, I mean, there's that conversation between Varys and Tyrion about, you know, they keep us in a box, but we find them repulsive too. Yes. They're manipulating people, and that seems to be a safer position to be in and probably a wiser one long term. Um, You mentioned the potential of Benioff and Weiss letting in a few points of light. Um, Varys last week said something that he could have just been trying to manipulate Tyrion, or maybe he believes it, that there might be a better way to live life than they had been. Um, This week I found similar echoes in something, another great character who I was so happy to see come back, Bronn. He, he when he's talking to his uh, his wife or soon to be is intended and he's like well your sister's mean and she's going to get a castle but these things have a way of working themselves out and it seemed like very weirdly glib optimistic karma as literally everyone on Twitter has pointed out to me very helpfully <laughs> so generously and so constantly uh, I probably wildly misread this scene um, apparently he told a story in episode seven of season four by the way. My bad. I try real hard, really hard to remember this stuff where he was basically like accidents happen and I can like make the second not as pretty wife get all the, you know, basically he's going to kill the sister. Sure. Um, okay. So maybe I misread that scene. That's possible. But he's still saying it. It's still being written in the script. There's still a belief that there is a way to fix things. Yeah. You know, yeah. which I think previously the wisest characters on the show were like, you know, what are we going to do? Bad stuff happens. Yeah. It's, you, ju- you just kind of s- hard scrabble it together and, 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 and see what happens. But we're starting to get the sense that maybe there are ways for it to work out. And anyway, it doesn't matter because he's leaving this woman because not only does Jamie Lannister show yes, up. Yes, he shows up wearing four. <laughs> he shows up wearing his new outfit, which yeah. I believe is called Devastation by Marc Jacobs. He was basically it's, wearing like, what did Garrett Hedlund not wear on set today? And I, I'll just go wear that. Yeah. It was basically like, they went to the costume designers and they were like, guess what? You just got hired to uh, to work on the new Star Wars prequel. It's called Han Solo Awesome Guy. Yeah, right. Make right. the costumes. And they're like, psych, we're going to use this. Um, I wanted to point out really quickly that I felt like the uh, the writing in terms of the dialogue has been really good this year. It uh, has been especially good. Especially 
the uh, Stannis Jon Snow Onion Knight scene where they're talking yeah. about um, whether he could become King of Winterfell. Uh, I was thinking about how hard it must be to find the voice for this show and the voices on the show and find that middle ground between obviously the dialect or whatever of the books and something that these guys are both really good screenwriters and that they they would like to hear spoken. Uh, And I was especially thinking about this and we can kind of talk about some of the other subjects we have coming up as I watched the Batman Superman trailer for the 10th time or whatever. Uh, can I just put a pin in this because I also want to? T- I feel like we have to talk about our man Kevin Lannister. Oh, do you want to talk about Kevin? I just want to say we have to talk about Kevin. That guy had great dialogue too. He had great dialogue, but also I feel like there's something at work here because he stood up to Cersei. You know, he he wasn't going to be your patsy. He walked out. But what I saw in that scene was it's not just like the Napoleon complex of a guy who is Tywin Lannister's bro- younger brother, right? His whole life, but he's also a guy whose name is Kevin. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's just like. The second indignity of having a not cool name in a universe of kind of cool names. Also, was she just straight up strength. making up titles for people as she was going down that table? You're the Lord yeah. of Whispers. I know there's yeah. a Lord of Whispers. <laughs> yeah, but like, yeah, it was yeah. like, you're the Lord of Oatmeal. And all you're the oatmeal. The Lord of gentle, <laughs> gentle caresses. Yeah. Lord you're, of Foliage. <laughs> you're the Lord of Morning Breath. Like, these are things that happen here in King's Landing. <laughs> uh, that, that scene definitely needed Will Ferrell from, uh, from Austin Powers. <laughs> like, so much so yes um yeah anyway, my uh, okay. point was basically that uh i'm you, so excited we're gonna talk about this well okay so i was thinking a lot about how these comic book characters these comic book stories have become our stories like there's just so little room to breathe in movies. our story yeah. batman v superman is our the story of this podcast <laughs> it sure is mm-hmm. uh I, I often have a British man talking to me and about fighting with you. You do. You do. And I often... Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, but I forget sometimes that these stories actually do come from comic books. And right. I sometimes will read a comic book from time to time. And while I really enjoy them... You've been known to. The dialogue is real stupid in them. Not always but in the vast majority yeah. of them but just I, the, like, I recently when i like why are they talking like this like why are they like sometimes a man needs to be a man and well get look into a bat suit you know and i just look, <laughs> should we talk about this yeah man go for it i know you wanted me to clear out and give you a little bit of hero ball here <laughs> i want to be clear about a couple things I was a Marvel kid growing up. I don't have, like, a deep attachment to Superman. Sure. I never particularly liked a Superman comic or whatever. But I was so deeply offended by this steaming garbage of this trailer. <laughs> like, like the fact that, I mean, on so many levels, the fact that Zack Snyder is allowed to make movies and not just, like, snuff films on his Instagram or whatever he's more suited to doing is insane to me. Uh-huh. The fact that this is the movie that we're making of Superman and this is, like, a major corporation was like, yeah, go with this one. Like, this is the look. Right. Let's let's I'm going to we'll come back to the dialogue thing. So last week we talked briefly, we touched on this when we were talking about Daredevil. And I was coming up I was trying to work out this idea that there really are one of the reasons why comic book stories have become like our mythology is not just because they make money, but because there is some kernel of something in the best of these stories that is universal or appealing. Yeah. Right? And so the Daredevil story works really well. Like it just makes sense. Uh, the Batman story lends itself to darkness and lends itself to being popular because it's like okay, trauma as a child makes himself into this thing, this Avenger, this tough, well, literally not an Avenger, that's a copyright issue, but right. you know what I mean. Um, inside many of these ideas are, are good ideas that 
Hollywood and money men and people like Zack Snyder just so fundamentally don't understand and they ruin. Yeah. So I was happy when I saw that in the way that none of this matters. Can we just put an umbrella over this that none of this matters? These are, sure. these are action figures run by billionaires, so whatever. But, but that's not true was, because these are actually – there's going to be like 35 of these movies right. over the next and, five years. So And I'm offended by this. We can either because, choose to engage with them or we can not go to the movies. Okay. okay, so I'm engaging with it. Yeah. And I think that it was good news that Marvel took Spider-Man back and, is gonna, and what they said so far about what they're going to do with another Spider-Man movie is no origin stories and he's going to be 15 years old in high school. Because what's interesting about that character always, it's a YA novel, right? He yes, is a high yeah. school kid who has power and he's juggling girlfriends and supervillains and he's always an underdog. That's appealing. The movies have always hit fast forward and been like, well, he now has to be carried like a Christ figure through the streets of New York City. Yeah. You know, after, the, the, that's not interesting. Like the same thing with the X-Men movies are the worst garbage right now because they're just pure fan service. Well, like, here's this character that makes no sense throwing energy bolts when yeah. it's like, it's a, it's about a school. It's about a school. Okay. Let's, let's say this. Okay. Here's what's interesting about Superman. Can we have this conversation? Sure. We, cle- we, we clearly are. <laughs> Superman was created in 1938 by like two Jewish teenagers who saw Hitler in Europe and were like, let's make something optimistic and bright. And the idea that evil can be defeated with a sock to the jaw, Right. The thing about this character is that it is bright, pop-colored, and heroic, purely heroic. And that's not cool, and that's not edgy, but it's kind of interesting if done the right way. And the first Superman movie with Christopher Reeve kind of got that. I mean, the tagline was, you will believe a man can fly. Mm -hmm. So now we have this new Superman movie where after coming off of a movie where he destroyed a city, where he's some sort of fascistic rage god, right? And the whole thing is about, you will believe that he can bleed? Who cares about any of this? Literally, who cares? Ben Affleck in a robot bat suit punching another character like you're playing with action figures in a sandbox? Yeah. It's kind of a perversion. And, it, and it's weird that it makes me so upset, but it does. It does. Okay. It, do, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I definitely think it looks pretty stupid, but for <laughs> – I, I have no real – that's the thing is that I don't have a, a right version of these things. I tend to react better to the ones that are less cartoony. And this, right. I, I, that's why I actually am not much of a fan of Zack Snyder's stuff, is that it just feels so much like you're almost like rotoscoping stuff. It, it, and it, I just is, never really have been that. That's never, I've never really been a fan of that stuff. But as far as having some sort of attachment to like the platonic version of Superman or Batman and whether or not they should make out or fight or whatever. I, 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 if the story was good, that would be fine. And there are people involved in this movie that intrigue me, like Holly Hunter and Jesse Eisenberg and Jeremy Irons. But I don't know why we've gotten to the point where, whether we're talking about Marvel or DC and or or a lot of other movies, the way that we talk about the the, the way that the dialogue sounds in these movies is just so divorced from either like real fun comic books or actual real right. dialogue. It, it's the worst instinct of, I think, anyone making anything, this idea that if you make it darker and more violent, it's somehow better or yeah. it's more serious. It, that is the cheapest recourse of anyone. And that, that happens on TV a lot, certainly. But that's what's happening with these movies. And it, it, it it's really – I think it's a misreading – I think it's a huge mistake. But I also think it's kind of a misreading of the culture, too, because – We've seen cities get destroyed. We've seen people punch each other in pretty much all the ways that it's possible to punch each other. You know what would be really hard to do would be to use the power of of CG graphics or of these enormous, like, cultural totems 
and all the money of these massive corporations and show something that might be inspiring? Like, what, sure. what if you made something beautiful? I, I, I'm just blowing your mind here. But what if you did? I, you know? Yeah. Th- yeah. Like, there yeah, is something totally. that is purely kind of amazing still about a guy who can fly, okay? So maybe make that seem amazing. Yeah. And that might be transporting in some way. And it's weird to me that they're doubling down so deeply on this idea that what we're going to do is make everything miserable. And that's going to differentiate us from Marvel because Marvel's very tongue-in-cheek, but it's tongue-in-cheek for a reason because that's more appealing. But the interesting thing about this movie and the uh, the next few Avengers-style movies, or the next few Marvel movies that have to do with Avengers characters, if I am reading this stuff right, is that both will be about a mass sort of fear and skepticism of superheroes. Yes, which that's, is what, an interesting, that's what Civil War will be about. That is an interesting connection point and it's also an interesting thing for to be making multiple movies about and that is I mean, yeah. to be honest that's pretty much what x-men is about is is these people who have superpowers who right. are treated like aliens and are have to fight for their lives for most of most of the comic right. book run but it's funny how we start like there was never really a movie about how great how beloved people like that could be. I mean, this is uh, this is a play off what you're saying about inspiring. There, we haven't had anything where it's like, wow, there's Superman. Superman's here to like help us out. Yeah, we, it's like we no, no, no. Superman's that. here just to knock buildings over, and he needs to be put in a box by this guy in a bad suit. And the same thing is going to happen with the Avengers, where it sounds like basically they had this big fight, and now in the next movie, people are going to start getting very skeptical about whether or not there should be superheroes at all. Right. Yeah, we sort of skipped to that. Yeah. Skipped ahead to that. Um, yeah, it's 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 strange. I mean, I, I still see some hope on the horizon because you have things like, um, I mean, they haven't even cast it yet, but Marvel has a movie called Captain Marvel. It's the first uh, female-fronted superhero, and the character is a, she's a, a jet pilot who gets alien powers and thinks it's awesome. Oh, cool. Like, I, I would rather watch that. I mean, maybe I'm alone in it, but I, here, here's why I think DC is in trouble with this direction. Like the, you know the 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 sort of rage-filled nine to seventeen-year-olds that are Zack Snyder's intellectual peers and creative peers here. Yeah, they were going to see this anyway. Everyone that I've talked to just casually about this trailer, or if it's come up in conversation over the last three days, for people who who don't get as agitated as I just did, literally the response has been, "Why are they fighting? I thought they were friends." Sure. Why are Batman and Superman fighting each other? Like that that is such yeah. a pure idea and you're kind of and that's just purely on a business level. Why are you why are you doing that? And I would say the same thing, you're right, about if you know, Marvel's next movie is gonna be the Captain America Civil War where Captain America and Iron Man fight each other. Right. So I guess that's the history of comic books is you get cool people and they punch each other. That's so, not So this is this brings up an interesting point then. The probably defining cultural act of our li- lifetime was the Star Wars the original Star Wars trilogy. I mean right. it definitely was the that it was definitely the most popular thing that existed during our childhoods and it continued to influence all, most of people from our generation yeah. throughout their lives. Yeah. And now it's back. And that movie and this these movies especially just hearing Gareth Edwards talk about Rogue One, I'm sorry yeah. to dork out a little bit, but to hear him talk about um the spin-off movie or the anthology movie that he's making and to see the second trailer of Force Awakens, that does seem to be separate from this binary that these marvel and dc movies seem to be swinging back and forth between hope and despair this i mean even if this is hey a darkness has returned to this universe 
this seems to be its whole other bag. It's like a it's like a viable third option, and it's also just like it looks so cool. I know. I. I, I agree. I grew up on this. These movies, just like you did, they meant a lot to me. But I've never. Maybe the, the prequels killed it in me. But I never had that spark. I didn't really care if we ever went back to this world. Sure. First trailer was what it was. This trailer got me, and what got me about it was. I mean, I said a minute ago about being inspired. The grandeur of it, it was beautiful. Yeah. Um, it matters. I think it really does matter that they made these robots. That they're real explosions. That they're going back to actually having things happen instead of just drawing everything. But I also think it's doing something kind of interesting because most of these comic book movies or blockbuster movies, like we've been saying, are, they're, they're about destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, what made the prequels so awful was literally everything. But one of the main things that hamstrung them was that they were about this shiny, CGI, glossy, perfect pre-fall world where everything kind of worked and just was meaningless. It was yeah, just an right. abstraction. It had no connection to the world that they had already built. This movie appears to be something we've never really seen, which is af- it's after the fall. That opening yeah. shot of a Star Destroyer, like, oh, this is what happens after you all high-five at the Death Star. You know, like, you have to deal with it. Someone's going to have to go to Tatooine or whatever and clean up the mess. Yeah. And the sense of this this broken, further broken down physical universe and people just trying to make sense of it, that's kind of... It's kind of exciting. I mean, I, it, it was a great. First, I mean, it's a good trailer. First yeah, I mean, there's all this. The, the, this has been kind of hammered home a lot. Kevin Lincoln wrote about it today on Graylin. Was just that Abrams, even if he has some faulty instincts as a storyteller, sometimes. I mean, Star Trek. I was very excited about the Star Trek movies based on the trailer, and it wound up that they spent like 15 minutes with Kirk having an allergic reaction to penicillin or something, you know, like where his hands swell up and there's like a sojourn onto an ice planet where he gets chased by a, a snowman for some reason but hoping that Lawrence Kasdan and everybody else involved keeps that stuff in check and there aren't too many different timelines or, or time jumps going on um, I think that the thing that he's going to bring to it is this sense of like physicality and scale and real actual dynamics where you know if you get blown out of the sky like that you're going to land over here you know what I yes. mean and that's actually going to hurt you know I, I, I think the thing about J.J. Abrams, and we have, we've ripped on him before and we'll have plenty of time to do it again. Yeah. Um, I think that w- in terms of the movie-making business, we live in a sell-me-the-poster kind of era, right? Mm-hmm. They won't make the movie if you can't sell the whole movie on the poster. Similarly, no one will buy a pitch for a movie or a TV show if you can't sell it in the room, if you can't sum it up, if you can't just zero in on what it is and where it's going. Yeah. I think no one is better at that in the world, or certainly in the business, than J.J. Abrams. And so we were talking about this with the Star Trek movie. It went in a bunch of problematic directions, and the second movie was bad. But he understood that fundamentally is about optimism, exploration, and he got he got the costumes right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he 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 brought it to that place. Like well, this is Mission Impossible thing. Three is not a great movie, but he understood the appeal. And yeah. I feel like in that way, he's the right steward for this because he he could pull those five disparate ideas out of that original trilogy and say, okay, we're bringing those things back and putting them forward. So many of these movies, like Fast and Furious or or whatever, like they have to take a real world thing and make it otherworldly. So the car has to jump between two buildings and then this explosion has to happen, but Vin Diesel can fly out of the explosion, even though he can't fly. JJ Abrams has to do the reverse. He takes the millennium Falcon and all this jumping to hyperspace and tie fighters and all this stuff that doesn't exist in our world and makes it very much part of our world. And I think that's a pretty cool thing to watch. Do you think you talked about how Gareth Edwards showed up to talk about oh, yeah. Rogue One? Do you think that Josh Trank didn't show up because the Fantastic Four trailer leaked and they were like, 
hard pass. No, hard I, pass on this I, game. There's been rumors that there's that his employment is in jeopardy or something like that, but I. I wonder if it's just not that far along. I mean, it sounds like he's a slightly slower worker or whatever. Edwards came out, like, and he was just like, I'm making a war film. Yeah. I'm getting the, the cinematographer of Zero Dark Thirty is shooting this. And yeah. this is about a world in which there is no God and no one is coming to save you. And I was like, what? You know, <laughs> did, 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 you get a, did you get a push alert on your yeah, phone? Seriously. Like, someone is tickling your brain right now? <laughs> but I don't know what Tranks is supposed to be. Is he, he's, he's got another standalone film, right? Yeah, I mean, the idea is... That that they're going to have a Star Wars movie every year now forever, and yeah. the trilogy, the core trilogy, is going to be separated by what two or three years, but in between they're going to be these standalone films. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it it it'll be interesting. I, I I think that whoever is steering, no one can write these stories because, and we're talking about our own company when we talk about Marvel and 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 uh, and Lucasfilm now because they're owned by Disney just like us, but. The most interesting creative story in many ways in Hollywood now is the management of franchises at the yeah. highest level. Yeah. Like, I think that the Marvel movies are often very good, mostly fine, but the planning and strategizing of them and the, and the way they've been delivered to us has been brilliant. And that's Kevin Feig. Like, whatever he's... Or Feig... Feige. Feige. I don't know. Beige. <laughs> I don't know how to say yeah. his name. Feige. It's the same way you say the yogurt. The point is... I would love to know how that works, but we can't get into that room. Yeah. Similarly, J.J. Abrams and Kathleen Kennedy, people who are running Star Wars, like if they, if they were smart enough to look at the, take the long view and say, well, here's what's appealing about this world and here's what matters and service that. And I'm thinking about that in, in direct comparison to the other trailer that, that, that came out, which was Jurassic World, which just looks like – it just looks awful. Yeah. Awful. Because, again, it doesn't really know what it is, so it's just going to be a monster movie about destruction. When, of course, the first movie – Spielberg made it, but it wasn't Jaws, really. It was kind of about wonder and ch- childhood, yeah, it was about too, the dark like all side Spielberg of movies. Yeah. It was a dark side of it, exactly. Yeah. But the, the thing that sold that movie, if I remember correctly, and I'm not just saying this because I was actually a child then, but I don't think it was necessarily running from the T-Rex. It was the moment when they got there and they saw the dinosaurs yes. alive the eating in the Samuel field. the shot of Samuel and Laura Dern's face as their jaws drop because they see everything. Yeah. It's wonder. And yeah. you see this trailer and it's just like, cartoon monsters eating each other and i feel like we're reaching obviously i'll use i statements i've reached my limit of that but yeah. i wonder if everyone has we'll see probably not probably not probably a billion dollars <laughs> um okay uh so we'll be back next week you can catch us on wednesday on watch the thrones talking thrones with mallory and jason uh i don't think yeah, there's check I mean, we're supposed to say subscribe on iTunes. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And then we've got uh, back with more Thrones of Mad Men and whatever else. Talk next week. Great job, Baranski! Later. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on Podcasts.